Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking specifically at uh, verses 1 and 2. I know some of you are probably cheering up right now and thinking, two verses. Wow, we'll be out of here. Maybe, maybe not. But anyway, you find your way over there to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And um, as, as you are, I'd like to just say that I, I was, as I was reading and studying, uh, I came up with a, a, summarize, a summarized goal, I, I guess, if you said, what is the goal of First Peter? <clears throat> this is what I came up with, and I'll just share it with you. The letter's goal is to instruct and to encourage believers to stand firm in their faith in Jesus Christ, unmovable in the grace of God, while living triumphantly as holy pilgrims in the face of ostracism and persecution. I'll just read it one more time. The goal of the letter is to instruct and encourage believers to stand firm on their faith in Jesus Christ, unmovable in the grace of God, while living triumphantly as holy pilgrims in the face of ostracism and persecution. That's us. Peter's writing this letter, of course, to Christians in the first century time period in the Roman Empire, but he's also writing this letter to you and me. Words that we find in First Peter certainly pertain to, to us as contemporary 21st century believers because it is important in these times, times that are becoming more perilous for those who are determined to stand for what is right and stand on the, on the teachings of the Word of God and to be faithful to Christ. These are indeed difficult times and are progressively getting tougher. Let's, first of all, the first thing I think it would be appropriate to do as we look at a, a new book is to talk about the author. Now, I'm not talking about the supreme author. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and so God is the ultimate author of all Scripture. But let's, let's talk about the human author that is making this book possible for us and writing to us. I know some of you probably look at the title, and it says, First Epistle of Peter. First Peter. And you say, well, probably, you know, this is a, a no-brainer, Pastor. It's Peter. Just like, well, you know, you ask people, well, who was buried in Grant's tomb? Or when was the War of 1812? No kidding, I've had people be scratching their heads on those, those two. But uh, they were Carolina fans, but anyway, you have to... <laughs> nah, I, I love you, I love you. That's my dig for the season now. <laughs> the only time that a Wake Forest fan can brag is when they get that one win, and then you don't hear anything else for, from us for the rest of the season. Okay, introducing the author. It is indeed Peter. Some skeptics say and question whether or not Peter could be actually the author. Uh, they point at things like the fact that his, his letter possesses such profound, deep theology and they're reasoning, and rightfully so, well, wait a minute, isn't Peter that fisherman? That untrained, uneducated fisherman? And, and yet he's writing, and we'll see this even right from the get-go, that Peter doesn't mince words. He goes right into some deep theological doctrinal teachings in his letter. And so as a result of that, they're saying, it's not possible that it would be Peter that wrote this letter, is it? And another reason that some of the skeptics question whether or not Peter is the writer is they look at the, the form of the Greek it's, that it's written in. It's a classical Greek. 
And again, they'll say, wait a minute, this is, this is Peter, right? His native language that he spoke was Aramaic, and yet he's writing in this beautiful classical English. So let's just talk about that a little bit. Or classical Greek. I do English. As far as the untrained and the uneducated part, I think it was interesting. You may recall after Pentecost when Peter began to emerge as such a powerful leader in the church, and of course he became a very visible target for the enemies of the church and the enemies of Christ, primarily the Jewish religious leaders. We think specifically about the Sanhedrin. And you remember, remember Peter and John were arrested. And they stood before the Sanhedrin. And I would remind you that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, the, the leadership council, this is a body of people made up of the Sadducees, the, the scribes and Pharisees. This is the most, this is the most learned, educated Jews in the world. And here's Peter and John standing before this body. And the scripture points out to us in chapter 4 of Acts there in verse 13 that, that as they are standing before this very murderous body of leaders who had instru inst instrumented the death of Christ, the Bible tells us that Peter was speaking boldly. And he was speaking clearly. And he was powerfully defending the faith. And it so impacted that council that they were wondering to themselves, how is it possible that this uneducated, untrained Jew fisherman could be standing before us and doing such a superb job in defending the faith? And then the scripture tells us they reasoned to themselves. And this is important. Because they had been with Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you today, it doesn't matter your educational level or background or whatever. It's not all the book learning or degrees that you acquire. The thing that makes you a powerful and convincing witness to those around you is the fact that they can see that you have been with Jesus. That Jesus is with you. And so, there goes the argument of the untrained and uneducated. Why? In the eyes of that same council, don't forget, they looked at Jesus. This carpenter's son? Why? He didn't graduate from any rabbinical schools. He was... Virtually uneducated as far as the, the Jewish leaders were concerned. He, he was not trained by the, the official Jewish schools. So this Jesus was an uneducated, if you will, untrained, rogue. And yet this same Jesus, time after time, when they would send their experts to trip him up, to cause him to stumble. Oh, listen, time after time, he would handle them. He would put them to shame. He would send them with their tails tucked. And the crowds would be amazed. So don't write Peter off. Simply because he didn't have a degree. The most important thing is that he was with Jesus. And that Jesus was with him. As far as that classical Greek thing. Don't get too upset about that either. Peter tells us later in the, in the letter. In chapter 5 verse 12. He says that he was speaking through and writing through Silvanus, who was one of his traveling companions, who obviously was a trained man in classical Greek. 
And he was a scribe for Peter. And Peter was dictating. And that's not an uncommon practice in biblical literature. That a person that God has anointed by the Spirit of God and inspired to write Scripture would in turn dictate to someone who would write it all down. And so Sylvanus may have been the reason that this beautiful, flowing, classical Greek, but it was Peter speaking. Now, now don't think just because Peter spoke Aramaic as his native language, if you would, or his daily language, that he wasn't familiar with Greek. Greek was the second language throughout Palestine. So he knew Greek. Peter knew, like most Jews, how to read the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then also, don't forget that Peter was a businessman. He dealt in fishing. And as a businessman, it would be absolutely necessary that you be able to relate to customers and other folks in Greek, since it was a a prevalent language at that time, in that that time period. So here we have this untrained, unskilled, uneducated fisherman giving us some powerful words. Would you look with me there in chapter 1? He comes right out of the gate. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect, in other words he's saying to the elect pilgrims, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You get what I mean? Peter doesn't just come right out in his letter and say, Hey, y'all, how's it going? Not, not going too good for me. No, he hits them right out of the gate with the powerful truths of the reality of the Word of God, the, the theological teaching of the Word of God. And so as we look at Peter, let me just tell you, or remind you, many of the things that we'll touch on as we look at the author, as we introduce the author, let me just first of all, let's look at Peter, Simon Peter the follower. Before he was a leader, he was a follower. That's usually the case, isn't it? You always start out by following, then you become a leader. You know, Jesus said over in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 40, he says, a pupil is not greater than his teacher. Y'all listening, students? A pupil is not greater than his teacher, so be careful how you get cocky in front of that professor or something like that. But, but, there's hope. There's hope. Because he goes on to say, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. So Professor Ryan Hines right here, at one time, was a student and a follower. But now he has an elite, distinguished title of being teacher. We need to get you a robe, brother. But anyway, <laughs> Peter was first a follower. It, you know, hold your place here in First Peter, and just kind of walk back in the Old Testament—not uh, Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Gospels. I just want you to see uh, in John's Gospel, for instance. Let's let's look at Peter and his encounter with Christ. Let's 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 re re uh, shape or recreate the story of Peter. First of all, we see in John's Gospel, chapter 1, the first encounter between Peter and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought it was so interesting. In chapter 1 of John's Gospel, if you look with me at verse 35, it says, again, the next day, John, this would be John the Baptist. 
stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following him, a following said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. And there's a reason that Jesus changed his name, which is translated stone. And I might emphasize little stone. Okay? If somebody's going to throw a stone at you, you ask him to throw a Cephas. But anyway... So at least, this is the first encounter. And, and, this, and I, want, I want you to see something here. Because as you go back now to the Gospel of Matthew, let's look at a second encounter. Because you see, for Peter, it wasn't a bolt of lightning out of the sky, such as it was, say, for the Apostle Paul. It wasn't an instantaneous, emotional, you know, miraculous moment where you, he was immediately transformed as the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus. I want you to see the process. And for some Christians, it works that way. It worked that way for me. I was about 10 years old, grew up in a Christian family, had Christian parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, went to this little church. I was brought up in the church. I tell people I was, I've been Baptist since nine months before I was born. And, you know, we got drugged to church, you know. Um, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Bible school, whatever. And I had my first encounter with the Lord when I was about 9, 10 years old. I was in a revival service and the preacher was preaching on John 3.16. It was there when God began to stir my heart. Make me realize that I was a sinner. And that I was in need of Jesus Christ as my Savior. And to the best of my understanding, I did make an effort to reach out. Went down the aisle, shook the preacher's hand. I was later baptized and put on church roll and all of that. But I'll tell you today, that was not my conversion experience. That was not the time that I became saved. It was when God began to work in my life. The reason I know that is I know how my life was as a teenager and as a college student. And Lord knows, I'm not proud of a lot of the things that I was engaged in and doing. It certainly didn't represent a person who was, who was sold out to Jesus and following Christ. But as a young adult, just about the time that Jan and I were beginning our families, when Christ came into my life a second time, He says, you know about me. You've been toying around with this thing of visiting around church and stuff like that and calling yourself a Christian. But he says, now, here's where the rubber hits the road. You either cut bait or fish. Let's get it serious. Maybe not just in that. But Jesus said, you need to follow me. You need to turn your life around. I need to be the Lord of your life. And I need to be the preeminent purpose in your life. If you're going to be a father, if you're going to be a husband, if you're going to be a leader, you have got to follow me. So I did the smart thing. I committed my life to follow Jesus Christ. The process started when I was 9 or 10, and it came to its full fruition 
when, as a young man, probably about 21, 22, somewhere in the 20s. Uh, and, and I have been following Christ. Not perfectly, but I have been following Christ from that time. Peter, had his encounter with Jesus. Jesus says, hey, guess what, buddy? I know who you are. And I'm changing your name. And you'll figure it out after a while. So we go to the Gospel of Matthew. And, and we look there in chapter 4. And we see the next encounter between Jesus and Peter. In, in verse 18. Now Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. Saw two brothers, Simon, and called Peter. And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That would stick with Peter, because Jesus would remind him of that later. And look at verse 20. They immediately left their nets, and they followed him. Okay, so now, he's encountered him first, and he says, you know, this Jesus, he's, yeah, Andrew, he's, he's, he's different. Yeah. Now Jesus encounters him by the Sea of Galilee and says to him and his brother, Look, guys, follow me. This fishing for fish is good, but you really want to live life to its fullest, you follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Alright, so you're thinking, alright, that's it. That's when he went down the aisle, signed a note, and raised his hand, joined the church, and he was a bona fide Christian, right? Not, not quite. Now Mark tells us basically the same thing in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 16, but then... I want you to see what I consider to be the real moment. The moment when Peter, it all came clear to Peter. Well, it had something to do with fishing again. That's how I can relate, you know. I relate to the scriptures when it talks about Peter and James and Andrew and John. Fishermen. There's nothing in the scripture about golf. Hallelujah. But anyway... That's what everybody's going to be doing in heaven. Alright? Okay, don't quote me on that. I want you to go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. I want you to see what I consider the big moment. Again, it was Peter and his brothers uh, out there by the sea. And so in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, look at verse 1. And so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. That basically says they're done for the day. They've been fishing all night. Verse 3, And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitude from the boat. Now when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let your nets down, or let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish. And their net was breaking. I've never had that experience personally, but I dream of times where I have something on the end of my pole that's about to break it. But anyway, so they signaled to their partners. Who are their partners? James and John. Don't forget that. They're partners. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats. Now that will really get your attention. So that they began to sink. Oh, it's getting crazy now. Man, put me there, please. What a way to go. Go down with your fish. Anyway, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it. Saw what? He saw 
A divine work of God instrumented by a man that he knew could not possibly be an ordinary man. Now, if there was a non-fisherman or somebody in that boat who was just along for the leisure, that may have not really impressed them. Oh, what about that? We just happened to run into a bunch of fish. And oh my goodness, isn't this nice? No, to a trained seasoned fisherman, when you've been out all night working the same area and you caught nary a fish and you go back to the same spot with this man and he says, drop down your net and suddenly you can't hardly pull them in. Not this just for your boat, for the other boat too. Then it dawned on Peter like a lightning bolt coming down from the throne of God. Wake up, Peter. This is not any ordinary man sitting in the boat with you today. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter suddenly, his eyes were open. So much so in verse 8 that he fell down at the feet of Jesus. And he says, depart from me. Why? Because he knew that he was in the presence of, of holiness. And he was a sinner. Verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the partners, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. For now on you will catch men. Now I want you to look at verse 11. Remember before in, chapter, in, in Matthew's gospel when Jesus said, come and follow me, they dropped their nets. If somebody comes up to me and I'm on the, down there surf fishing and they say, hey, can you come over here? My little boy got a hook hung in his finger, you know, uh, and help me get it out. You know, I, I, I'll drop my pole and, and I'll go over and help him get it out. I, I'll try. But I'm coming back to that pole. I'm sorry. After we get that done, we, I'm coming back to that pole and hope that some big fish hadn't dragged it off into the ocean. So they were coming back to fishing before. But I want you to look at verse 11. It says, So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed Him. You could have tried your best to say to Simon Peter and to Andrew and to James and John, but, but, but boys, wait a minute. you got all this investment in your boats and your nets, your business. And I submit to you today that when they experienced and encountered the living Lord and that heard the call of God upon their lives, let me tell you something. The priority of their life shifted. And fishing and making a living by, by fishing suddenly dropped down because the only thing that was on their mind that day, the only purpose for living was go with Him. Wherever He goes, we're going to. And they never looked back. So Peter's conversion we see there. Well, let's look at some of the notable qualities and, and weaknesses of Peter. I believe back in John's Gospel in chapter 1 when he first encountered Peter and Jesus said, you know, your name is Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. I'm going to change your name to Cephas, Little Rock. Jesus was say, basically saying to Peter, Peter, I see potential in you. You may just be a fisherman and nobody ever thinks that much of you, but hey, I, I think I see something in you. I, I'm, Jesus saw potential in Peter. Let me tell you something. Jesus sees what other people don't see in you. And I know it's so frustrating for the Lord sometimes when we will sell ourselves short 
And we will try to make excuses for not stepping out to share Christ or to serve the Lord or to be unselfish and to live the, li- the life that Christ has called us to. And Jesus is probably shaking his head, but say, if you could only see what I see. I created you. I shaped and fashioned you in your mother's womb. I know every part of your life. You've got potential. I wonder what Jesus would change our names to if he were speaking to us directly. Well, you know, Peter had potential. He was one of the boldest of the disciples. You may recall in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, out there on the Sea of Galilee, verses 28 and 29, the the disciples were out there. They're on their way across the Sea of Galilee to meet with Jesus. Jesus was back on the shore. Storm blew up. Big storm. Big storm. If you get seasoned seamen like Peter and Andrew, James and John crying like babies, scared for their lives, and then along comes this mysterious figure walking on the surface of the water, and, and it's in the middle of the night or later, and they, somebody, probably Judas, said, Ghost! <laughs> that gets your attention. Okay? All right? And so everybody's panicking. And finally, you know, Jesus says, Peace. And so, whew, well, I still think it's a ghost. <laughs> and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, Command me to just kind of do this walking on the water thing with you. And I know the story. Y'all know the story. He's climbed out of the boat. Jesus said, come on. Come on, big boy. Come on out here. The water's fine. (laughs) And he steps out on the water. There's raging winds of waves crashing. And Peter steps out there and he's walking on the water. Show me somewhere else in the scripture. Where somebody's walking on top of the water. I wouldn't recommend you try it unless you're a good swimmer. But the fact is, he was walking on the water. And of course, he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink. And then this is where the critics all jump in and say, Yeah, Peter had little faith, didn't he? Yeah, Peter had good faith like me. Uh, he'll stay afloat. Baloney. How many other disciples got out of the boat? <laughs> so we see the boldness of Peter even in that example when he stepped out of the boat to, to walk on the water to Jesus. But we also see the boldness of, Christ, uh, of, G, of Peter in, in, in uh, Matthew's Gospel chapter 16. We're fast forwarding. Jesus and his followers are there and Jesus is asking the question of his disciples, who do people say that I am? That's a good question. And they're speculating about all you know, Elijah and Moses and all these different ones. John the Baptist. And Jesus turns to them. And you know what? If you've not encountered it, you will. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have had to answer this same question. Personally. Not for your children. Not for your parents. Not for your friends. Personally. The burning, eternal eyes of Christ look deep into your soul, just like He did with Peter and the rest of them. And He says, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am. And Peter says, you. Peter said this. Not the other disciples. Peter says, you are the Christ. The Messiah. The Son of the living God. He didn't hesitate. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You notice he didn't use Cephas right there. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. The flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, brother. You didn't learn that in a book. It came from heaven. 
And he says, and now your name is going to be Peter. Big rock. And he says, upon this rock, and I want to emphasize, not the person of Peter. He's not some predecessor of the Pope. It's not upon the person of Peter. But it was on the divine revelation of God made in the form of a confession of faith where Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. I based my life on it. And Jesus said, good boy. Because I'm going to build my church on that same confession of faith. Peter was bold. He spoke out with boldness and, 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 and with a sense of leadership. But he was also the most chastised of the disciples. And if any of you were black sheep of your family, or still are, out of 11 children, you know I'd be the one. And I'd cringe from people, you know, that I had maybe been pastoring and, you know, and my mom would visit the church, you know, here at Cornerstone. I'd be cringing. Because she had so many stories that she could just unload. She could have done me in. I mean, I know it's hard for you all to even imagine, but I was the mysterious kid. And I dare say I got more whippings than any of my brothers and sisters collectively. I got whipped by my parents. I got whipped by my grandparents. I mean, anybody in the neighborhood saw me, that's come over, Charlie, I need to whip you. <laughs> You've done something, I know. So, you know, Peter, Peter, bless his heart, he had those, right after that bold confession of faith in chapter 14, well, in verse, in chapter 16, there he is, Jesus is explaining to the other disciples, and Peter, I'm going to be going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tortured, crucified, buried, and raised. Now, <laughs> the rock, okay, because he's got a new title now, he's, he's riding pretty high right now. So he takes it upon himself to say, you know, <laughs> bless his heart, Jesus is just a little bit off base. So he pulls him over to the side. I can just see it. Peter putting his big old fishing arms around Christ and said, now, now, Jesus. Come on, let's temper that down a little bit. It's really not going to be that way. And of course, you know, Christ turned to him. You can just see his glaring eyes like lasers looking deep into Peter's soul and said, get behind me, you Satan. Boy, you can go from up there to down here in a hurry when you dare to step out in following Christ, right? Well, that wasn't the end of it. We know that in chapter 17 that Jesus took his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, that were on this high mountain called the Mount of Transfiguration because there, with Jesus, they saw Christ transfigured. His glory began to shine through to him, uh, 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 in him. He was bright like a star. And, and lo and behold, there were Moses and Elijah. I mean, talk about a party. And again, the rock said, you know, looking around, says, I better, I better arrange something here. This is a special moment. And so he pulls G, the Son of God over to the side again and basically says, nah, Hey, Lord, look, look, I got a great idea. We got, we got Moses and Elijah here, and, and, and you're shining like a light bulb. Let's build some tabernacles. Let's camp out. Let's stay here. Let's don't go back down there with those nasty old other disciples and those sinners and demons. Let's just stay up here. Now, that would have been me. I'm sorry, I confess. Because I would love to milk any moment. You know, big emotional moment. You see, that's the problem with traditional revivals today because we stage an event 
that, that gets people hyped up with all this special singing and they bring in a polished, positive speaker and everybody's on, who, 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 you know. Three days later, they're back at their sinning like, you know. Peter's going to make the most of the moment. And if it wasn't bad enough that the Son of God has already chastised you, suddenly there is this voice, the Scripture tells us, coming down from above. It's the Father. It's bad enough when the Son has to chastise you. But then when Peter is blabbing off at the mouth, trying to arrange things that have nothing to do with the purpose of the transfiguration, the Father speaks down in a booming, thunderous voice and says, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. But listen, I like the next thing. Hear Him. That's polite language, folks. Peter may have been the only person on the face of the earth in all the history of humanity who God said, shut up. Or as Bonnie Fife would say, zip it. <laughs> and of course we know that in Matthew's Gospel chapter 26 when Jesus has been arrested. And I'll give Peter credit. He was at least following close behind Christ. Most of the disciples scattered. I mean like scared cats. But at least he was in the earshot could see what was happening. And three times Peter denied the Lord. When asked, he said, I don't know this man. And then he began to swear. I said, I don't know this man. And then the third time he began to cuss. Must have been Episcopalian. But anyway, just, I, I apologize for any Episcopal folks here today. Cussing and I submit to you for your consideration this morning a third time Peter was chastised he was chastised by the Holy Spirit who took him back to the moment when Jesus told Peter you're going to deny me three times and Peter said oh no Lord never these will but not me I'll die for you I'll go to prison for you I'll never deny you and the Spirit of God grabbed his face riveted his attention back and replayed that moment and then took his jaw like Laura used to do to me when she was a little girl and I'd come home from work and she'd jump up on my lap and I'm trying to listen to Jan and check on Tim and you know watch the news and Laura's going 100 miles an hour telling me everything that happened to her that day she was about 4 or 5 and she'd know I wouldn't, I wouldn't listen so she'd grab me by the jaw and go so I was looking at her and I think the Holy Spirit grabbed Peter by the jaw and says, Look! And Peter saw Christ beaten, spat upon, bruised, humiliated, on his way to die. And the Lord looked at him. I believe the third time Peter was chastised by the Holy Spirit. But you know what? Isn't it beautiful? The Lord didn't write Peter off. He restored him. He restored him. We know in John's Gospel, chapter 21, when Jesus, after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, Jesus appeared by the lake where they fish. Peter and his friends are going back to fish because they just trying to put things together and figure it out. And while they were out there fishing, Jesus appeared on the shore. And of course, he did another miracle, a catch. And they said, and Peter knew exactly who it was. He jumped into water, swam over to the shore. Jesus fixed the breakfast for them with his own fish. And then after breakfast, he's talking to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, Lord, I love you. 
Then the Lord proceeds and tells him, well, then feed my lambs. Then he says again, Peter, do you love me? You remember? Peter said, well, yeah, Lord, you know all things. Yeah, I, I love you. And the Lord says, well, then tend my sheep. And then the third time, how many times did he deny him? Deny him? Yeah. The third time Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's getting frustrated. Lord, you know all things. Good gracious, you know I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. The Lord restored Peter. But let me tell you what else he did. He recommissioned him. You see, when Peter had denied Christ, he felt like his life was over. He felt like, surely, God's not going to have any use for a person to deny the Son of God. You know, what, what use am I? I'll be a second-rate disciple, maybe. Carry their bags or something. But you see, three times Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. You're going to be a leader. And so we see the transition from Peter, Simon Peter, the follower, to Simon Peter, the leader. There was a wonderful, powerful transformation that came over Peter. We see Peter being promoted into leadership, if you will. Back there in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16, where Jesus is calling disciples aside and he's giving them a call. I want you to notice something. Peter and James and John are the three disciples that Jesus routinely takes off to the side as if he's given, pouring himself into him. I heard Dr. John MacArthur in doing a study of the relationship between Jesus and the disciples. He said that Jesus' relationship with his disciples were, was like concentric circles. He related to all the disciples. He loved all the disciples. But you could chart, based on the teachings of the scriptures, his closest relationships. And in that inner circle, the closest circle of, of intimacy with Jesus, there was James, Peter, and John. And then there were the others, the next circle, and then there the outer circle, I call them. The one that Jesus kind of had a, a, you know, a loose relationship with, if you will, Judas and the rest. But in that inner circle, Jesus was pouring himself into James, Peter, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw that. But then when Jesus went to raise Jairus' daughter who had died in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 8, verse 51, Jesus took Peter, James, and John into the chamber where that dead little girl lay with her parents. In Mark's gospel, we know that in Gethsemane, in that agonizing time, Jesus took with him to pray. He left the other disciples behind. He took James, Peter, and John. I need to say it properly. Peter, James, and John. Okay? Peter, James, and John. All the way through the scriptures, wherever you find listings of the disciples, it's always led out by Peter. Even the three, Peter, James, and John. Because Christ had elevated Peter to a position of leadership. And Peter's role in the life of the early church exemplifies that. After Jesus is, is, is resurrected and then later ascended into heaven. Hey, the leader's going to heaven, y'all. Who's going to lead this bunch? It didn't take long. In fact, in chapter 1, we we're told in, 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 in Acts Gospel chapter, or Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 15, when it came, as soon as they reassembled into the upper room, waiting for the Spirit of God to lead them, we're told that Peter stood up and said, we need to re-elect, we need to elect a replacement for Judas. Obviously. Peter stands up and he orchestrates that process. And they elect 
another follower, uh, another uh, apostle, if you would. And then we know that in chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured down upon that group and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Who was it that stepped forward and preached the most powerful message of that day that the Spirit of God used to convert thousands of people into the kingdom of God? It was Peter. He has emerged and then it didn't stop there. He and and John in chapter 3 of Acts, they're working miracles like when they healed the lame man. And, and, and through that, multitudes were drawn into the kingdom of God as a result of seeing the power of God and hearing the message of God. And Peter and John emerged as leaders in the early church. And we saw in chapter 4 of Acts where they addressed the Sanhedrin with great power and authority. So Peter is indeed a leader in the church. In chapter 5, we know that when two of the early church members... Ananias and his wife Sapphira chose to lie about proceeds that they had sold some property and were given to the church, but they were lying. Who was it that confronted them? With the power of the Spirit of God, Peter said, Ananias, why have you lied? Doesn't matter, you're going to die. He's gone. Sapphira came in. After they had taken her husband off to bury him, she comes in. Peter gives her a chance. Tell me, Sapphira, what happened with the property? Proceeds. She said the same story, told the same lie. And again, with the authority of God, Peter says, Sapphira, why are you going to lie to the Holy Spirit? The same people that just carried your dead husband out of his will carry your dead body out right now. Boom, she's gone. I'd say Peter had the blessings of God as a leader. And so throughout the scriptures, we see Peter exercising this authority all the way up to chapter 15 in the book of Acts. When we see that Peter, with the council, the church council, the very first council of the church in Jerusalem, they were debating about whether or not they, to require the Gentiles to subject themselves to the teachers of the law. Paul was out there preaching grace, and he said, it's not necessary. The Judaizers were saying, yes it is, it's important. We, we all need to adhere to the law. They came to Jerusalem, had a council, and who was it that stood up? Before the council, that first church council, and, and, and talked some sense into the whole crowd, it was Simon Peter. Because he was the very one that God had used to open up the gate to the Gentiles in the first place, as we remember from the scriptures in Acts chapter 10, when Peter went to Cornelius. Peter calmed them, he directed them, and he says, yes, we will make it possible for Gentiles to be a part of the body of Christ. No, we will not require that they adhere to the teachings of Moses and the Mosaic law, because we know for a fact that we're all saved by grace through faith and under the blood of Jesus Christ. As we embark upon the letter, as we move forward in this letter, it's, it's good for us to know this man who wrote this letter to, to challenge, and we'll talk about this in a future message, but the, the people he's writing to in that time period, they need to hear clear, authoritative direction. They need to be reminded of who they are and who God is and what their purpose in this life is. Let me tell you something. In the culture in which we live right here in the United States of America, the respect for 
traditional Christian biblical values is waning. It's diminishing. It's going to be harder and harder for Christians to stand on their convictions based on the teachings of the Word of God and function out here in this culture because the sentiment of the government has begun to turn hostile. The sentiment of the commercial industry has turned hostile. The educational institutions have made it clear they don't want anything to do with you. So don't just look at this letter and say, oh, that was first century. That was during the Roman Empire. I'm glad that's not the case for me. I say to our younger brothers and sisters in this congregation today, you have my prayers. You have my prayers. And for the rest of my life, I will pour myself as your pastor and the rest of our pastors into you to help to equip you because I promise you, if it is the conviction of your heart to stay true to the teachings of the Word of God and to be an authentic representation of the kingdom of God, you have stormy times ahead of you. But I promise you this, you are not alone. You are not alone. And you are already the victor. It may not appear that way right now, but you are already the victor. So church, let's remember, this letter has a lot to say to us. And as we move forward, I pray that hearts will be open and receptive to just what Peter is saying, or God is saying, to the church in troubled times.